I'm Sherry Greco-Rikus, co-founder of Rappaport Rikus Capital Management. Welcome to the Maximize Your Return on Life podcast. As an investment advisor, I guide clients to reflect upon their core values as they make major life decisions. I will be interviewing real people with real stories who have embraced this approach to achieve success. I hope their stories will inspire you to maximize your return on life. Today, I'm talking to a person that I probably talk to uh, three to four times a day. No, it's not my husband, but he sometimes people do get that confused. But who I'm talking about is David Rappaport. He's the Rappaport of Rappaport Rikus Capital Management, and he is the chief investment officer of our firm. I met Dave in college. Uh, I think I was his big sister. We're not quite sure. But uh, our relationship didn't end in college. We worked together at Arthur Anderson. And uh, when I was looking to make a move, I contacted him. And he was the one that brought me over to Sanford Bernstein. And we worked together there many, many years. And one day, uh, someone I knew who had a hedge fund wanted to start a private client division within his firm and asked me to run it. So uh, Dave was always my confidant at um, Bernstein. So I was talking to him. And as I was talking, all of a sudden I thought, why would I run someone else's private client business? Why don't we start a business together? And um, so we kind of talked about it and the rest is history. In 2005, we launched Rappaport Rikus Capital Management. We left on great terms. We actually started uh, in a Panera. We didn't even have office space. We weren't even registered. And we have had the firm now, which is so hard to believe, 18 years. We manage over $825 million. We are on the road to a billion we have about 400 clients. And I don't know, Dave, did you ever think this is where we'd be, uh, where we are at this point? <laughs> uh, years ago, it would have been hard to imagine uh, just how much we've grown, uh, Sherry. And uh, thank you thank you for the kind introduction. We do go way back. And it's been such a pleasure, not just being your uh, business partner, but uh, having you as such a, a good friend and uh, no, I do remember those early days where uh, the goal was just to bring in one client uh, at a time. And here we are today, uh, knocking on the door of managing, you know, about a billion dollars for clients and we'll get there uh, pretty soon. And uh, I think a lot of that is due to your vision and kind of your relentless push to continue to to make our firm better and to make us uh, grow. I would uh, argue one thing though, I think we probably end up talking about eight or nine times a day as opposed to- Oh yeah, probably. I try to limit it to three or four. But the other thing is, I don't know if you remember, but we had this big push to get to a hundred million and we told our kids we'd take them to Disney World. Uh, they're now <laughs> in their twenties, your daughter's married. So yeah. I don't know if Disney World is still an appeal, but- uh, I think that would be, be a fun trip. It think, would be fun, but we'll be celebrating in June in Lake Geneva and your daughter's wedding. So, oh, that uh, so that's great. So when we started the firm, there was all kinds of ways to manage money. But before I get into that, 
Today's podcast is really about questions that clients and some of our referral sources are constantly asking us. So Dave's going to talk about that. He's going to talk about the current market conditions, and he's going to give our insights on how you can uh, structure your portfolios to take advantage of today's market. But before we get into the current market, I kind of want to take a step back because when we started our firm, we basically had a blank piece of paper and we came up with a concept called value added indexing. And Dave, can you kind of explain what that is? Oh, absolutely, Sherry. So you both remember the firm that we came from was primarily focused on picking individual stocks and trying to figure out, you know, is now a good time to be invested? Where are the hot spots in the market? What's going to work best? And you and I, as advisors back then, were constantly trying to explain to clients, well, why, you know, we've underperformed, but eventually the cycle was going to turn and we'd outperform. And we were always focused on explaining what was going on with individual stocks. And I think when we started the firm, we both came to the conclusion that that focus on individual stock selection really had so little to do with our clients accomplishing their long-term goals, their future goals. It really wasn't a productive use of time. And we both had a lot of experience in putting together financial plans for clients. And our thought was, why don't we just use funds that track the markets very closely and make sure that clients get the return of the markets. So either using index funds or funds that were very similar to index funds as part of a comprehensive plan to make sure that our clients meet their goals over time. And it really has been a very smart strategy. Uh, I think as we both know, and as we constantly write about, uh, most people that spend their time trying to pick individual stocks or pick pick individual funds and try to beat the market, they actually are not successful at doing that over time. The most effective strategy is to own funds that track the market, keep costs low, be sensitive to taxes, and focus on long-term thinking. And that really is the heart of what our value-added indexing investment approach is all about. And just to kind of, we like to use pictures when we talk to potential clients. So our strategy is like owning the haystacks in all areas of the market. And the other strategy we call, which is active investing, is finding the needles in the haystack. And it is so hard. Markets have gotten so efficient that kind of our big joke is that the research people are on the airplanes going to interview the CFOs and CNBC is talking about the company while they're on the airplane. So, you know, with the technology and everything that's going on, markets have become what we call very efficient, very hard to find the needle in the haystack. And, and Sherry, there you go. And I, I just can't gave a long-winded explanation of our <laughs> approach and you did a great job simplifying it own the haystack, stop bothering to try to find the needles. That's a much, yeah. much smarter way to explain it. We don't get paid by any of our managers, but we have two really great partners. Uh, we use Vanguard for bonds, and we use a firm called Dimensional Fund Advisors. Uh, it started by David Booth. A lot of people listening, I did interview David Booth, and he's the one that gave all the money to University of Chicago. It's now called Booth Graduate School of Business. But there's kind of a story how we found Dimensional. And I know you don't like talking about the story because you lost. But can you let our listeners know about that story? 
Yeah. So back when we were at our prior firm, uh, I was in a, a competition to try to manage money uh, for a, a fairly significant family office in Chicago. And ultimately, uh, you know, our prior firm and, and uh, me as the advisor, we didn't win. And so I talked to my contact and I said, well, you know, who won? And they said, well, we decided to give up our, our money to a firm called Dimensional. And their approach is very different than yours. And as we've talked about, instead of trying to pick a handful of stocks and beat the market, their approach is just simply to own the market. And that really was eye-opening for me in particular because I didn't win the business. And when we started uh, our own firm, uh, we both thought it made sense. Well, why don't we put the odds in favor of our clients? And at the end of the day, I think we'll win more business doing that. And I think- that Yeah, and that, you know, that core philosophy hasn't wavered, but we also had- another blank piece of paper. And we thought it was prudent for us as we started the firm to come up with some investing core principles. And those principles have not changed in 18 years. So can you talk about our core principles that guide our investment strategy? Absolutely. I'll start with just a, a little bit about why you need a set of core principles, because if you don't have a set of principles in terms of how you're investing money. In essence, you're just reacting. You're reacting to what the market's telling you. You're reacting to what uh, strategists are saying on CNBC. You're reacting to predictions. You're kind of bouncing back and forth between all these different uh, uh, models and all these different uh, variables. And at the end of the day, that's not gonna lead to success. So we said, why don't we start talking about what we know works? And we came up with five principles. And as you've said, they still guide us today. And the first is how clients, how investors do over time is really a function primarily of their asset mix. That's their mix of cash stocks and bonds and their planning. And a big part of their, their planning is making sure that their spending is conservative and reasonable relative to the assets that we have. So we start working with clients and come up with an asset mix, an asset allocation that makes sense for them and an investment plan that makes sense for them. And ultimately that will guide their success. Our second principle is we are truly long-term investors. We don't get influenced by what's going on in the short term. We don't try to make changes based on who's gonna win an election or whether the Fed's gonna raise or lower interest rates or what everybody else is doing. And we would try those strategies. We certainly would try to time the markets if we thought it would give our clients an edge, but all kinds of academic research and practical experience shows that it doesn't. So we truly are long-term investors. Uh, we do live in uncertain times. I think as investors, we always will live in uncertain times. And that leads to our third principle, and that is just be diversified. It's the most effective response to uncertainty. Own lots of different things, that all should do well in the long term, but maybe don't march along to the same drummer. And that diversification will help you uh, when one area of the market isn't doing so well, you know that you'll have other areas of the markets that are doing well. Uh, the fourth principle is focus on controlling taxes and controlling costs. That's one of the things that you can control as an investor. And we utilize uh, very low cost funds, again, managed by Vanguard, and dimensional. And those funds not are only are low cost, but they're very, very tax efficient as well. 
And the last point, the last principle is let the markets work for you, not against you. And that really means try to get the returns that the markets will give you over time. Don't try to beat them. In the long run, it's really not an effective strategy and more than likely you're going to lose. So let the markets work for you, accept the returns that they give you, and don't try to constantly outguess or outthink the markets. And we put those principles in place when we started the firm, and they've been very effective helping us navigate good markets and difficult markets over a long period of time. Yeah, they've really stayed, you know, really our core principles since we started. Um, so let's talk about today. Um, sometimes when I look at today, I start to think about when COVID, we had 2020 and 21, we never expected the positive returns in those years. Then we came to 2022, which was a very tough year. Both bonds and stocks had a very difficult time, but things change very quickly. That's why we always are long-term and stay the course. So it looks like this year, portfolios are doing very well. So what's behind this uptick or this positive performance for portfolios? Yeah. Well, for starters, I think we were both pretty happy to close the door on a rotten 2022, uh, as you said, in which both stocks and bonds had negative returns, primarily because early in 2022, really late 2021, we started to see much higher inflation numbers. And the Federal Reserve began a very long program of hiking interest rates from basically zero to about 5% where they are today. And that had a negative impact on both stocks and bonds. But here we are in 2023 and through the end of April, it's actually been a pretty good climate. And uh, U.S. stocks are up about 9%. I think we've given a little bit of that back over the last couple of days, but uh, call it 7% or so. And international stocks are even doing better, uh, up about 10 or 11%. And I think a lot of stock investors have been very encouraged by the fact that the Fed has been on this cycle to raise rates, and they're probably very close to the end of it. Uh, they just raised uh, uh, yesterday uh, the Fed funds rate by a quarter of a percent. That was expected. Uh, they may continue with another quarter percent or so. We'll find out. But the consensus is that they're closer to the end of the cycle, uh, or they're very close to the end of the cycle. And that's going to be a positive development for stocks. At the same time, a lot of investors had expected that this uh, rate raising cycle was going to push the U.S. economy into what perhaps would be a deep recession. Well, we're seeing signs that the economy is slowing down, but I think the likelihood of a deep recession, you know, perhaps later this year is much lower than investors had thought previously. So the combination of all of that is really given a push towards stocks and it's been a good period. And on the bond side, we actually have seen interest rates come down, not on cash uh, where interest rates have gone up, but on intermediate and longer term bonds, actually interest rates have come down. And that's because a lot of bond investors, perhaps contrary to uh, where stock investors are, think that the Fed may be forced to actually pivot and even cut rates uh, sooner rather than later, maybe closer to the end of this year, maybe into next year, uh, as the economy does slow down. Uh, so that's led to strong bond performance as well. Uh, so we haven't made it up uh, all the losses from last year, uh, but it's a good start to this year, and we hope that it continues.
And just to remind our listeners, uh, we're taping this the first week of May. It may not be produced for several weeks. So maybe by then we'll get it all back, Dave. But I just uh, don't want you to think. <laughs> Dave, always, the always the optimist. Always the, but I, I don't it. want you to think Dave doesn't know what he talks about. So when the market changes in the next <laughs> two to three weeks. So this is where we are the first week in May. Um, but Dave, I, I want to go back to interest rates because we hear on the news, and this is kind of one of the first times in my career this has happened, an inverted yield curve. What does that mean? Yeah. So it means that you can get a higher yield on cash than you can on intermediate and longer term bonds. And typically you get a lower yield on cash and you get paid more for owning bonds that mature in 5, 10, and even 30 years because those bonds have more risk. Uh, but we're at the opposite today. The yield curve is inverted, meaning you get a higher return on cash. Yeah, I mean, it's it's quite remarkable. I think the money market's paying about 4.6. And what's the 10-year at? Like 3.8, 3.85? Yeah. Yeah, the, the, exactly. Yeah, the 10-year is right around uh, 3.5%, the 10-year treasury. But you could put money into one of the Schwab money market funds, uh, which which we're doing, and we'll talk a little bit more about, and get maybe 4.6, 4.7%, taking virtually no risk. It has caused us to make a couple of changes uh, in our our bond portfolios. Do you mind if I talk about that a little bit? Sure. Why don't you talk about that? Yeah. So typically, uh, really over the last 10 plus years, uh, when interest rates were much lower and basically cash was returning zero, we encourage clients to think of their portfolios as, well, you've got money in stocks and you've got money in bonds and you add it up and it's a balanced portfolio. And we had very little in cash because there was no return on cash. And here we are today with, you know, a four and a half, four point seven percent return on cash. And so we've responded by moving a healthy component out of our bond portfolios and into cash. And so now we're encouraging clients not just to look at the bond portfolio, but to look at it as a combined bond and cash portfolio. And what it does is uh, it ultimately increases the yield on our client's portfolio uh, without taking on any additional risk. So we are taking advantage of the fact that uh, cash has such a strong return right now for clients. Yeah, and that's something uh, we have an investment uh, policy committee, and this is something that we watch regularly, and we were pretty fast to act on it because it is an unusual, but there could come a time where the yield curve gets back to normal and we'll go back to our other strategy. But Dave, a question that I often hear a lot is if I'm getting 4.6 on cash, why should I even own bonds and why should I even own stocks? I'm happy with the 4.6. I'm only spending 4%. Yeah. So I'm fine. Now we, we, we hear that a lot. And, you know, I tell you what, if you say, well, I've got all my money in cash, it's earning 4.6%. Remember after tax, your uh, after tax return is lower and you're still losing out. And after inflation. Exactly. Sure. Good, good point. You know, after inflation, you probably have a negative, what we call a negative real return. Um, so if the question is, you know, should I get out of bonds and take all that money in bonds and move it into cash? Well, that's a market timing decision. Uh, you're really saying I'm going to be pretty smart and figure out when to get out of bonds and into cash. And then at some point down the road, I got to figure out when to get out of cash and back into bonds. And it's tough to make those calls uh, successfully over time. 
And actually, had you done so, you would have missed out on the very strong return in bonds uh, already for the first part of this year as interest rates have come down. Uh, if we do have a difficult situation in stocks, and we've seen this repeatedly over the years, if there's a, a sharp stock downturn, people uh, like to put money in bonds. It's the, the traditional or classic flight to safety, flight to quality. And in those scenarios, bonds do quite well. And so our response isn't to try to figure out, yeah, should we be all in bonds or should we be all in cash? Uh, it's to own some of each. And again, we're, we're pleased to have a, a big chunk of the, the bond portfolio, what was previously the all bond portfolio, uh, now in cash. But we still think it makes sense to own a portion in high quality uh, conservative bonds as well. And we do think uh, stocks over time are your best hedge against inflation and are your best answer to get long-term growth and good returns. Uh, so even though cash has quite a yield on it, we certainly don't think it means sell your stocks and hold your money in cash. If you tried to do that again, you'd have to figure out, well, when's a good time to then get out of cash and get back into stocks? And you got to be right on both of those decisions. And the likelihood of that happening isn't that great. And just to be clear, um, for you know our clients, we're putting about 20% of the bond component into cash. So we still have a healthy um, bond component. And you know when we started the firm 18 years ago, all we talked about was stocks. Bonds were bonds. We only talked about stocks, but we're seeing things like preferred, you know, banking preferred bonds going down 40, 50 percent. We're seeing some corporate bonds going down to zero. I think we know about the Enrons and those. So, you know, you need to pay attention to the bond side of the portfolio as much as you do on the stock side. We also diversify with some tips to counter inflation and also international bonds. So there's a lot of thought that goes into the bond strategy, not just buying a bond. And I'll also caution our listeners, single bond exposure can be very risky as well. Credit quality changes. So, you know, we spend a lot of time looking at bonds. Such such a good point, Sherry. And I'm glad that you brought that up because we get questions from time to time and investors are always being pitched about, you know, we can really uh, get much higher returns on bonds. We take a little bit more risk. We do this or that. We've always looked at bonds as the safe and secure part of your portfolio. And we've always felt if you're really looking for higher returns, don't take more risks in your bonds. Own more stocks. And with a long-term perspective, that should uh, be a, a very effective strategy. Uh, but we've always looked at that bond portfolio as the more safe and secure portion. So just speaking of cash, you know, how secure is our cash uh, at Schwab and in these money markets? Yeah, so that's a great question. Very topical in light of some of the bank failures that we've seen recently. Uh, people have been asking, is my cash safe? And it is extremely safe. Uh, the money market funds that we invest in, their Schwab money market funds own very high quality securities. And the money market funds are separated. They're not on the balance sheet of our custodian, Charles Schwab. They're separate securities. And we have uh, just a lot of confidence that clients are going to get that good return, that 4.6, 4.7% return uh, with virtually no risk. So we have a lot of confidence uh, that the cash is being invested prudently and we're not losing any sleep over the money market funds at Charles Schwab. 
And here's a little financial tip for our listeners, because we talk to our clients all the time. A lot of our clients do have cash or had cash in bank accounts, and uh, you should really make sure you know what the interest rate is on your cash. Often it's paying much lower than 2%. And these money markets, you know, that we have is at 4.6. So if you do have a significant amount of cash, just check check the rates, make sure what the rate is. And if you have home equity lines, check the rate on that too, because prime has gone up so much. You might be surprised that some of these equity lines you have are seven or 8%. You're having cash at 1%. Maybe you want to pay that down. So just a few things that we talk to our clients about. So if you really don't have any debt, you don't have a need for this money, you have some cash, you know, you've gotten a bonus, maybe inherited some money, is now a good time to invest the cash? And if you do, how would you advise investing it? Yeah. So assuming that you do have a long-term time horizon, we think it's always a good time to get started and put money to work for the long-term. Again, if we were so smart and we could figure out when the market was going to bottom out, uh, we'd simply do that. But uh, we don't have that ability and we're very skeptical of anybody that can tell you you know, now's the time to be on the sidelines. Now's the time to get in um, and such. So we're big proponents of what we call dollar cost averaging. And that just simply means spreading out additions to your investment portfolio in equal installments over a, uh, a set period of time. Uh, so we'll use an example. You get that bonus. It's $100,000 and you want to invest it for the long term. Instead of putting it all to work today, why not just say I'm going to add $10,000 each month, we'll say on the 15th of the month for the next 10 months. And I think it'll take a lot of pressure off you uh, investing in much smaller chunks than trying to do it all at once. It's a very effective strategy. Another question actually we've been getting for many years is, should I still own international stocks? Yeah, uh, again, a very good question. And I think most people are surprised when they find out that if you add up all the value of stocks, U.S. stocks and non-U.S. stocks, international stocks represent uh, almost half of the value uh, of stocks in the global market, about 45%. So there are a lot of great companies uh, and uh, great areas of the market. Uh, and if you just ignored International, you'd be missing out on a lot of great opportunities. Now, having said that, you know certainly over the last 10 years, the U.S. stock market has done better. Uh, but we can show you other 10-year periods where international stocks uh, have done better uh, as well. And you look at over the last 12 months, international stocks have outperformed the U.S. Uh, so our approach is just to, to say simply, you know, own both. Uh, the bulk of our portfolio is about 70 cents of every dollar that goes into stocks, goes into the U.S., but having a healthy allocation, maybe 30 cents of that dollar for stocks outside the U.S. means you're diversified. And if the trend for uh, international to continue to outperform, as again, it has over the last year continues, uh, you'll benefit from that. One thing that we know is international stocks are trading at a lot cheaper in terms of valuations versus their U.S. counterparts. And uh, that's why a number of analysts, including Vanguard's research group, really looks out over the, the long term. And their projection is for international stocks to outperform the U.S. Uh, over the next decade or so. You know, we don't have a crystal ball. I think we're very comfortable saying 
let's own both, you know, the bulk of the portfolio in the U.S., but let's have a healthy component outside of the U.S. as well. And can you bring us back and talk about something called the lost decade? Because that was a period. Yeah, the 1990s. And and that was a period basically during that 10-year period ending with the dot-com dot crash where, you know, there basically was no return on U.S. stocks and or a 0% return. And, and uh, international stocks for that period had positive returns. So we don't know if, you know, the, the 2020s will be the lost decade. I, I doubt it. But it just points to, hey, look, there have been periods where international has done better than the U.S. Let's own both areas. And it kind of goes back to the haystacks and the needle owning different areas of the market. They move differently. It can smooth out the ride. And especially in your retirement years, when you're living on the money, you want to have a smooth ride as possible because the more, you know, when you take money out, you can't have the time to gain that uh, performance back. So that's a big part of the asset allocation, which is probably our first principle that Dave talked about. So I've actually been very intrigued uh, with all this Elizabeth Holmes. I've I read the book and I watched the documentary and, you know, very smart people invested in her. You know, the, obviously there was the Madoff and there's a lot of this FOMO, this fear of missing out. And, you know, what I've noticed on these is the people that invested, they were very charismatic people who owned these companies, who got people to invest. It was like a party you had to be invited to. There was no due diligence. None of them had audited statements. It was something that you wanted to tell your friends you invested. So what is your advice for our listeners that may have FOMO, the fear of missing out out there? I'd start by saying our approach, Sherry, you know, we cannot compete with some of these very charismatic individuals that ultimately... Oh, come on, Dave. You're pretty charismatic. Oh, well, thank, that's very okay. kind of you to say. Okay. <laughs> Maybe the first time somebody has uh, said that. Our approach is, well, I hate to say it, Sherry, it's kind of boring, but it's very effective. And, you know, I guess if you're desire from your investments is to be able to have great stories to tell at cocktail parties. Investing in funds that just track the markets, maybe it isn't the most exciting story. If your desire is to grow your long-term wealth, to meet your retirement goals over time, it's far better to maybe be a little bit more boring, a little bit less exciting, but I think you'll do better over time. And basically just one thought, because thoughts always fly through my head, you know, our approach allows you to host those cocktail parties <laughs> yes. instead of just going and bragging at those cocktail parties. So you'd rather be the host than the bragger. And I do say, you know, we, our clients invest in 15 areas of the market and every year there's a winner and you're going to own it. So you will have a bragging right to own that area of the market. I see a future blog coming out of that, Sherry. Yeah, I think there's going to be, yeah, lots of blogs. So, you know, about... Five or six years ago, we really came up with this concept called maximize your return on life. Of course, all the things Dave talked about helps you to maximize your returns on investments. But we think that our job is more than that. We want to help you maximize your return on life because you've worked hard for your money. And we kind of came up with a five-prong approach. We want to help clients get organized. Values, that's my thing. We really want to look into your values. We want, if you have a significant other or a family member, share those values. 
And then when you do your financial plan or your retirement planning, make sure your values are incorporated into that. We also implement through our value-added indexing approach that Dave talked about and our philosophy on investments. And then just don't put all this on the shelf. You constantly have to review your values, review your investment plan, make sure your estate plan is up to date, that you understand all your benefits, that your insurance. So, you know, this process uh, really gives peace of mind. But my favorite question for all the guests that I have on this podcast is Dave, how do you maximize your return on life? Besides working with me every day, what's the other way that you maximize your return on life? Okay. I, I knew you were going to ask that, Cherry. And, you know, working with you, uh, working with our clients, I spend a lot of time on numbers and analysis. But I think that one of my values is to be a little bit more creative. And as you know, I'm a big music lover. And I'm a frustrated rock and roller. So about maybe 15 years ago, I picked up my guitar, which had been uh, sitting in a closet for a long period of time and started playing again and just really dove right into it. And I'm at the point now where I've got a rock and roll band. I play with a, a bunch of other, uh, <laughs> uh, we'll call it a dad band, though the, there is a, our, our, our drummer's a woman. Uh, but we have a lot of fun playing classic rock and roll. And as, as you know, every now and then uh, we go out and play in front of people. Uh, and it's been a uh, just a great outlet for me, a great way to be uh, creative and have a lot of fun with it. So I would say that's how uh, I maximize my return on life. Well, Dave, I hope our listeners got a lot of insight on the market today, what they can do to help their portfolios. And Dave loves to talk about our two ratios and efficient markets and the efficient market hypothesis. So you can find Dave at drappaport at rrcapital.com. And I know he'd be happy to talk to you. If you want to learn how you can maximize your return on life, please go to rrcapital.com and you'll see the five-prong approach there. And we also have our own uh, podcast website, Maximize Your Return on Life. Com. So this was great. Does this count for one of the times that we talk, the nine times we talk a day? We'll, we'll give like this three. <laughs> yeah, we'll count it as three. Yeah. So thanks for being on the podcast and hopefully things I'm the optimist, but just, you know, stick with your plan and things will work out. Great. Thank you, Sherry.